Scarlet O'Hara was not beautiful, but men seldom realized it when listening to filthy Armenian adventures. My guest tonight comes from the world of fashion, a world governed by the wind and the gesture and the velvet glove, a world we trust to supply glamour, taste, style into our lives, a world we depend on for color, the wardrobe department not just for ourselves, but for our stars. The fashion world is a place I have not spent very much time thinking about, perhaps because I am a dude. Any way you flip me, I'm still male. But I'm forced to think about it now, because there has to be something about the world of fashion that is not entirely corrupt. There must be some sort of enclave, some sort of Epstein Island in that world, where some sort of freedom has been vouchsafed. Freedom enough to allow Elena Velez to do what she is doing. Elena is a fashion designer age 29 who comes from Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Her work is known for its use of metal, for a fascination with industry, the industrial and industriousness, for being very consciously rooted in the post-industrial aura of the Midwest that made her. She was raised by one parent, the captain of a ship on the Great Lakes, and that ship's captain was her mother. Elena has all the credentials, the laurels, the awards you need to be defined as a hot thing in the fashion world. She's put metal on the skins of many stars, Beyonce, Grimes, Doja Cat, Julia Fox, etc. And that's my favorite rapper, etc. She had everything going for her in the mainstream fashion world, and yet, a couple years ago, instead of continuing to ride the wind behind her back, she veered because she looked out at the landscape, and saw what we all see. The nothing. The gray. No currents to navigate, just the gray, gray nothing. The vast, empty battlefield of a cold, cold, cold civil war. Where do you even find clothes in a world like this? For what do you dress up? For whom? What kind of dress matches with a hospital mask? What statements are there to make? Who's listening and who cares? She saw what we see. 
she felt the disgust that we feel. And instead of continuing to lucratively pretend it's all the same as before, she detoured into the wilderness to look for smoke signals, to look for signs of life. She started listening to podcasts. She started finding an unusual kind of model. Models who think thoughts in their heads. Models with ideas. Observations. Taboo fascinations. Models with personalities that are maybe a little more extreme, a little more personal than the average fashion person's personality. She started mixing these models with fabric and metal, and introducing them on the runway. In fall of last year, she put The Longhouse on the runway. And last week, Fashion Week in New York, in the Upper East Side, she deconstructed the runway entirely into an immersive salon about Gone with the Wind. The models mingled. The models made noise. The models were podcasters. I can't breathe, one model said, her corset tight around her. Another model, the bustiest in the room, paid tribute to the feminine wiles of her looksake, Scarlett O'Hara. Another model was described by Vogue as the Carol Burnett of it all, bringing levity to the affair, linking the literary style of Margaret Mitchell to the shopping and fucking tradition of Judith Krantz. In an effusive paragraph, that was later quietly deleted by Vogue after somebody told somebody that the model in question was Jack Mason of the Perfume Nationalist. The media asked the models questions intended to undress them and reduce them to mannequins, thereby revealing why some people are models and other people are media mannequins. There came rack time from the piano, that genre named for pleasures lost, and played on this night by the last virtuoso of that lost pleasure. And by the end of it all, it was tomorrow. At long last, at least in this winter season in the world of fashion, tomorrow was another day. Tomorrow was another day. Certain shifts could be detected. Certain facts on the ground had changed. Certain winds in the air, long gone, could be felt. And no, you didn't have to be there. I mean, it would have been great if you were. It was a really cool party. I mean, I'm sad you couldn't make it because it felt really special. I mean, trust me, you would have been like, wow, something is happening. And I'm present for it. You'd have been like, ooh, can't believe that's Julia Fox and all the New York Times people are here. You'd have been like, wow, I'm not missing the FOMO. I don't have because I'm actually here. (laughs) But still, you didn't have to be there. You just have to be here listening to this. A sign that your mind is alive, that you have a soul, and that you are part of it. I mean, still, it would have been great if you were there at the actual event itself. But you get what I mean. In in, in spirit, you are part of it. And after this brief word from our sponsor, I'm going to talk to Elena Velez about 
What happened before the ball, during the ball, after the ball? Who's been ordering those dresses? And how she feels about this tomorrow. Hey everyone, it's your host Alec Mohibian with a quick note before we begin. Filthy Armenian Adventures is an interdimensional travel program that takes you deep into the cultural mysteries of our strange and interesting times. In search of truth, in search of gold, in search of lost friends and unsung heroes, in search of John Galt's motor. The show is supported entirely by patrons at patreon.com slash filthy Armenian. Patrons get access to twice as many adventures, including the most intimate and scandalous ones, plus regular 5 to 15 minute smoke break mini episodes on movies, shows, and topics of the urgent moment. Patrons also get first dibs on our next live event. The first two were a smash. It's very easy to keep filthy Armenian adventures alive. You can still listen to the premium feed on Apple or Spotify or your favorite app. And you can do so with the pride that you're putting a little bit of money where your soul is. More patrons means more landmarks, more hotspots, more secret locations and forbidden territories around the world and the world that is Los Angeles, our apocalyptic headquarters. It means we'll be able to track down more enchanting figures in the landscape and dare them to abandon their masks. Patreon.com slash Filthy Armenian. Gracias for listening, and enjoy the show. And like a ball being thrown, we are on the air with Elena Velez. Elena uh, Velez. I bet, say it, say it like how should I really say it? Um, I don't know. I just go by Elena Velez. Um, but Elena my, my Velez. Is... Elena Velez. <laughs> Elena Velez. Um, empress and star of the recently complete, the recently uh, held. Elena Velez, Salon 001, tomorrow is another day. Yeah, I guess that depends on who you ask. Well, I mean, the people who matter. The people who matter in the realm of taste. The people with taste. Well, I mean, what's like, it occurred to me that, well, fashion, well, we'll get to this because I I was appreciating and like reflecting on this event for the last, after it happened. And I was so, uh, uh, I was so honored to be there, and I had such a good time. It took place at the Irish Historical Society, which is a really cool venue that I obviously didn't know about yeah, on the Upper East Side. How did that come to? How did that? How did you find um, that? I very very mysterious research that cannot be disclosed. <laughs> no, okay. I found it on Space. Um, it was this on Pure Space. Cool- 
Yeah, dude, I'm fierce. Oh, face. perfect. I'm not tell anyone because it like really like blows the load in the wrong way. Um, but I thought it's just <laughs> a stunning mansion that is right across from the Met, and um, yeah, it was spectacular. It fit the vibe perfectly. Um, of course, we are going through all of these different contentious correspondences trying to get our deposit back because everyone was smoking up in there. There's wine spilled all over the floor. We had a raucous time. I will say that. Well, the smoking was a huge part of it. I mean, I was told that it was okay to smoke in there. And then I saw somebody smoking a cigar in there. I had checked in my cigars with my coat. And then so I made that little like, oh, I, I went up to the guy who was smoking a cigar and I was like, oh, you know, I um, uh, wish you I knew I wouldn't have. I bummed <laughs> a cigar and it was a yeah. good one. And yeah. that's what, and I, and honestly, I think it helped the gen, the overall, I mean, I, I know it helped the overall like fashion, uh, the, no, the, so the, the appearance. It, it was, was so perfect. Good. Because that's it, exactly like, what they would have been doing in yeah, the yeah, and they time. were just so mad at us. They were kicking us out while I'm like scrubbing the floor. I'm on the phone. I'm still in my look from the evening, like trying to give quotes to business or fashion, and I'm getting chased out by these elderly women at the Irish Historical Society. And it's like, you know what? That was the best time this place has seen in 150 years. And the founders and everyone who's touched the history of this place would be so proud. So. They they're super proud. They are they're they are ballroom dancing in their graves. Uh, they they're like you know these a lot of these venues need to be a little bit more. I've been dealing with this in L.A. with these events that I've had. They need to be a little bit more conscious of like you know who's actually renting their space when it's something special, you know, and it's not just like a yeah. some fucking uh, uh, wedding or some bullshit. Like they have to they have to have a little bit more cultural awareness and not be so uh, snooty uh, on rules when yeah. something's like you know important is happening. And I think they realize that sometimes the one who the the place we did January six. They started to realize that, I think, during the event, finally. But great place. Great event. Cool. Beautiful place. I mean, yeah, like the, the place itself is historic. Like being in there itself was just was magical. But everything about this event, about this event is interesting to me. And I wanted to talk to you about it because I didn't even know when we were when 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 it was all being hatched up in our group chat months ago. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize it was actually going to be your seasonal display. I thought it was just going to be a party. I thought it was just you were throwing a, a party and salon. Just and I knew it was happening during Fashion Week, but I didn't realize that this was going to be your statement for the season. Yeah, I didn't need to be doing all that. I did not need to merge these two things. It was like this would have just lived on its own as a really fun, cool, niche event, which is how I'm going to format the salon from now on. Um, but I, I put them together because I really wanted to amplify this and get a platform for it and to show people like the experiment in process. So I think, I think it was worth it moving it to the fashion week slot. And, you know, I was able to get some different sponsorships for it and really blow it out and turn it into something really special. Cause like if we continue to do this over the next couple of months, I think it would be really fun and meaningful for me to be able to uh, have a fashion proposal that goes along with each, you know, theme of the next salon. So like the types of people that I really want 
Um, I'd love to do like a salon with Quentin Tarantino and all of the girls are just in these amazing looks. They're all barefoot. It's just a mess. And the then barefoot, <laughs> barefoot contestants left and right with the Tarantino I want to do one with like Vincent Gallo. I want to do one with Camille Paglia. And each event co coincides with like a micro capsule collection launch of some sort. And just like integrate fashion into a new demographic of people that are just, you know, filling a, a place in the market for people that realize that there is more um, outside of New York and L.A. Right. Um, I mean, these are and these are all names that are not obviously not at all associated with fashion. Um, they're okay. associated. Yeah, they're associated with with uh, various degrees of, well, you know, artistry, criticism, dissidence, edginess. Um, I don't like the word edginess because it implies a certain it, it applies a certain fabricated pose, which a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. uh, so-called like edge people tend to tend to tend to uh, tr cash in on. But in fact, it just means that you tell the truth at a time when it is not convenient to tell the truth and you do it in a manner th that is also stylistically uh, stylistically frowned upon by the conventional standards of your of your set um, and I think that, you know, that's what you get with Polya and Vincent Gallo has been kind of on the outs with public society for 20 years now. And apparently he's been going around building, uh, real, like building houses and selling them for obscene amounts of money. That's what I've heard anyway. That's what he quietly does. Um, I, and you know, he's obviously a complete and total iconoclast himself. Um, Tarantino is not an iconoclast. Tarantino's in the thick of everything, but he has somehow managed to reject the hypothesis mm -hmm. and get away with it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, these are like uh, obviously. I mean, these are these are figures who aren't associated with fashion on the one hand, but in the other hand, anything they do is news. Yeah. Anything they do sets a trend to those who are, I would say, like intellectually ambitious. Mm. Absolutely. I'm so yeah. excited that you're thinking of these things. Let's get Easton <laughs> Ellis in here. Let's get Welbeck in here. Like, let's make critical discourse sexy again. Exactly. Um, I mean, and that's, I think, what, what's been happening through the combination of the online podcast realm the last four or five years. Mm -hmm. How did you get in? How did you find your way to that? Like, how did you find your way to Red Scare? How did you find your way to this world? You were on Red Scare about a year ago, I think, when I first heard how yeah, this, actually, how, yeah. it's kind of funny. My husband um, is from Sweden, and he was the one to put me on to Red Scare. And we're kind of a funny couple. He's 22 years older than I am. He's from Sweden. He just got to the States maybe like six or seven years ago. And he found a lot of solace in the type of feminism and cultural critique that they offer. Um, the Swedish woman is a completely antithetical archetype to the Red Scare girls, I have to say. And he just felt validated and vindicated by a lot of the things they were saying. So he, of course, shared it with me. And that was history. I had been listening to them um, nonstop for probably three or four years before I had been on the pod. So that was a lot of fun. I knew I wanted to collaborate with them in a more interesting and meaningful way. 
And so slowly through their introduction, I started to meet all of these really exciting people that were like uh, participating in the cultural marketplace in new and unique ways that felt um, that felt meaningful. And and pe- creatives and that are living life on hard, like they've chosen the most difficult setting to um, better understand themselves within. And that's just something that I really appreciate and um, aspire to. When did you first, I like the idea, I like the way you put it, the living life on hard, because I do think that that's pretty much, that's that that accurately describes it because there's so many other levels that you could take. And mm-hmm. that you see in the, among the people who come and cover who covered the event, who have right. chosen a different difficulty level to live life on, the ones who totally. write for the Washington Post. it must Post. be nice. It must be so nice. I must this be, I mean. A, a salary Condé Nast girl, like just making her paycheck, going to her fashion week gigs, getting to do a little virtue signaling on the side. Like a huge, huge week for the most insufferable PR girlies you've ever encountered huge 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 week for like the the fascist conspiracy theorist mongerers like (laughs) like i i was just trying to do like a fun little thing for the girls and it just turned into this like just absolutely insufferable discourse and and also just and you know as bad as the the mainstream one the mainstream kind of uh lib elite coverages have been i'm not they weren't all bad they were i mean vanity fair wrote a very positive i'm not sorry vogue vogue which is the granddaddy of them all when it comes to fashion obviously vogue covered it quite positively i mean maybe you have your personal yeah uh, well i mean you you can tell which um editors i had had prior conversations with and who i had been able to establish a little bit of context with um and they were a little bit more neutral and a little bit more thoughtful so yeah (laughs) Although they had a great paragraph praising the contributions to the evening by Jack Mason, and that entire paragraph, hours after being published, Damn. was magically disappeared Damn, in a manner, it. yeah, in in a manner that recalls the machinery captured best by the Fountainhead by Ayn Rand, as we've been trying to tell people. Uh, this is this is nothing new. The, the these these operations are nothing new. If anything honest and truthful sneaks through, there is some Absolutely. sort of a a a, a a a a cloaked hand that comes in to to erase it as soon as possible. And but luckily we have screenshots. So <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, they live on in posterity. Yeah, they live on in posterity. Um, and uh, I'll, I, I, I read it out on one of my um, mini episodes, that, that paragraph that, that Vogue had had, which was, you know, it was not only praising uh, Jack's contribution, called him the Carol Bur- Burnett of the evening, which I love that mm. concept. But it also brought, it also just informed, it also just helped shed some light on what, how this was a different sort of fashion event. I mean, mm-hmm. what happened was we all got in there, we, mil- we socialized for an hour. There were these beautiful hors d'oeuvres, which, by the way, I didn't taste a single one of. And now all I do is read reviews about how great the fucking buffet was. And Shout I didn't out taste Daniel a- Emilio Soares from Alimentari Flaner. He did an amazing, amazing job. And all of the food was curated based on all of these like artisanal American fromageries and mm. seasonal items. It was just so cool. He really did a great job. 
Yeah, I I missed them. I missed them. I did have the 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 unmarked bottles of Pinot Noir. I had several glasses of those. So those were really that was really nice, and I liked nice. that they were unmarked, um, like they were made. You know, like they were like they were fermented right out back in the plantation or something. At some point, we need to like make our own like hooch or bathtub gin to go with the salon that you can only have when you come. Right. Let yeah. Say- yeah. Exclusive exclusive one night only vintage yeah um yeah that'd be that's a good idea um and i'm sure there i'm sure there there there's always going to be someone among us who's capable of making it too yeah shout out anybody out there who's listening who can do a cool thing i will find a way to make it make sense (laughs) (laughs) now so you're you're um just to get back into your history a little bit you're fat you're doing you're making outfits for beyonce you're making outfits for who else who, who, who before you got into this you broke into this particular stride yeah i mean once you graduate and you have a little bit of a body of work that's when you start to interface with stylists and people that are pulling um from the runway to dress celebrities or vips or influencers whatever so I did this for a couple of years and um, my work is obviously like very visual, very striking, kind of avant-garde. So it got a lot of editorial um, requests. So in that time, I had started to dress celebrities like Grimes, Charlie XCX, uh, God, Solange Knowles, Arca, all sorts of people. Um, but it's it's fun. I mean, it's a cool mind fuck to be working on people whose work you consumed while you were creating something. So it's just, it it goes full circle and also shows you just how tiny and um, how, how malleable the American culture industry is. You can find a way to insert yourself into this narrative through all of these different ways. And once I started to think about New York like that, um, and once I realized that like Beyonce isn't this godlike figure, she's a, she's an amalgam of 30 to 50 different people that all specialize in contributing to her greatness. And you have all of these different degrees of separation to these people. Then you can touch the the gold standard, the top tier of American culture in a new way. And it just kind of shows you the the four dimensional chessboard here, so that's it's been crazy. What was your first big move career wise? Like, how did you first find yourself making a move on that four D chessboard? From you're from yeah. Iowa, is it? Tell me. Yeah, I'm from Wisconsin. Yeah. Well, Wisconsin. I mean, the yeah. thing is, like, I've always wanted to be a fashion designer. God, if I could choose to love any other thing, I would. This is just an abominable industry to have to. <laughs> make a name for yourself in. Um, But I've always wanted to do fashion design. Ever since I was little, I was always collaging shapes and colors and silhouettes on the female form. And I couldn't articulate what about that was satisfying to me. And I never realized that there was a economy around this thing that I liked to do. Um, But I was singularly focused on, on this one thing And my mom is a ship captain on the Great Lakes. She had no proximity to any sort of creative culture or cosmopolitanism. I don't know. But she was really great at helping me to locate 
the next steps to continue to feed this um, obsession of mine. And if you look on local news from like 2008, 2009, like you'll find all of these cringy old videos of me as a teenager. I was kind of a prodigy in Wisconsin, not because I was talented particularly, but because I was interested in this really strange thing <laughs> that had no had no real context in the place that I was from. So I had a lot of time to put myself on the right path. And from there, I ended up at Parsons in Paris for a couple of years. Ended up in Parsons, New York. I studied at Central St. Martin's in London. Had this huge 360 experience in the fashion industry and realized that um, the most creative fulfillment that I was able to bring uh, came from my experience back in Wisconsin. And the woman that the fashion industry was so desperate to um, to put forward, uh, I already knew. <laughs> so right. I think that is kind of um, where like all of the different constellations aligned and I've been able to find my path. And so that's, that's the, the <laughs> right. That's, that's like the, the atmospheric, the but sorry. Yeah. The, 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 the atmospheric, but like you're, did, do you feel like there was a moment where mm -hmm. you kind of found yourself? I mean, cause you clearly have like, you're clearly f have this fearlessness where you feel like you can, you know, to, uh, where, where Beyonce stand, the nation that is Beyonce and the nation that 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 is any one of these stars, which you've like, yeah, I mean, I totally understand when you say that it's not one person, it's 50 people yeah. who make these stars. They're not. And Constellation is also a good, you know, when it comes to stars, like stars are, I've been thinking a lot about stars because I'm from LA and the nature of the star machine over here weighs heavily on my imagination. Mm. Um, I think it was a, it's one of the great achievements of Hollywood history is not just the products that it, the, not just the movies, but the, the, just the machinery of stardom that it invented right. and that it maintained for so long. Um, some might say no longer exists, but to some degrees it does. I mean, the, the names you've mentioned are obviously stars. They've done it in music, but it's still, there is this, this machinery that involves a, a lot of extremely talented individuals who have contributed in some way or another, who have collabed, as the Zoomers say every time they have sex now, um, who have collabed and who have, who have uh, obviously in often, I mean, probably not always, but, but often in tandem with the talent of the, the person whose name we're, we're repeating, Beyonce or whoever, who has to have the taste to make her decisions and who, you know, trust the right advisors and all yeah. of that, obviously. But it, 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 tastemaker. Yeah. I mean, there's so much like shadow and light to this because what you, what mm -hmm. you see of a star is you see the light at a, it's a, you see it at a different time than when it's, when it's put out. I mean, mm -hmm. the, 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 the laws of physics give us all the metaphors for realizing that we're not looking at a real at directly at the, at the source. When we see the, the light of a star, uh, we're looking at all kinds of, we're, we're looking at a refraction through all kinds of different layers of reality. And you had the confidence to, to find an opening for, for yourself to the, yeah. to, and. But it's never been a moment. It's never been a singular time. Uh, it is a relentless 
uh, insistence that you have something that people are going to know about and you're going to make them understand that you're onto something. And it is literally grabbing somebody by the shirt and telling them that you are a star. Like I'm, I I'm onto something, listen to me. And they'll ignore you for however long. And it's just a, a process of convincing everyone um, from the interns that come into the studio to the people that come and drop off supplies to the Vogue editors, every single person along the chain, you have to ignite with this idea that there's something magical that you, um, that you're onto that you can share with them. And it's, it's just, it's a habitual insistence on greatness. <laughs> If that makes right. sense. I'm, I'm like trying to figure it out in my own brain too at the same time. No, I am too. That's why I'm asked. That's kind of why I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm talking about it is to kind of like, uh, spur ourselves to figure out what it is because it's, yeah. I mean, you're only 29 years old, right? I've heard yeah. that number. You're very young. Um, and I mean, just the fact that you've seamlessly made your way to my, I'm not a fashion person. I don't know. Sh fuck yeah. all about fashion. <laughs> I'm this like, so I, cool you me. know. Uh -huh. This is what I yeah. want. This is what I want. This is like, this is the audience. This is the engagement that I crave as a creator. It's like bringing fashion to a demographic of people that wouldn't otherwise be specifically interested in fashion, but who are making really interesting aesthetic contributions to the American cultural landscape. Those are the people that I want to align with and um, share my passion with. And so a little bit of uh, the provocative nature of this last show was to send up a smoke signal to those sorts of people that um, find value in what I'm trying to propose. Right. A smoke signal is, a, is, is an important way of putting it. I've, I've kind of, uh, I've, I've used that one, that phrase myself when describing the way in which the la over the last four years, uh, we've kind of all of us in that room that night, or most of us in that room, those of us who knew each other, know each other, the way we have found each other over the last three, four years has been through this process of smoke signals, um, mm -hmm. from a various, from various different kinds of points, points in the wilderness. You know, we've all been, we're all scattered all over the place, except for the people who are like in New York, New York, New York who've like Anna, Dasha, who've like knew each other for years, even yeah. they weren't, didn't necessarily know each other that well. Even, even they were sort of finding each other through the wilderness via smoke signal. But, but the way in which we found each other and the smoke signal process we've, that we've been using in our various ways, all from very different walks of life. I mean, Jack is from Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. Like he's, he's almost before the last few years, he'd barely been anywhere outside of Texas. Um, and he suddenly, he's one of these, uh, suddenly he becomes like this beacon that draws all these various people together, including myself. I mean, I'd been following Anna since 2019, uh, when I found out about her, I saw her name and it was Armenian. And I'm like, how do I not yeah. know? Like, I know every Armenian in the world. There were, there's barely, there's like so few of us. So I like, how do I not know this, this chick? And, and also wait, she's cool. And also wait, she's funny. And she's, uh. She's like secretly based, in hot. Her, huh? And she and she's hot, and also she's like her her podcast is called Red Scare, which was almost Best. identical to a project true. I was working. 
Say that yeah. again. It's yeah, too Red good. Scare. It's... Say more about exactly... the project. No, I mean, I was working on a, I was writing a TV series. I was creating a TV series with my friend called Red Curtain about that would be that was like an anthology series set in the post-Soviet space. When I saw Red Scare, I thought, I mean, I was like, I literally thought it was almost like a parallel to the type of thing we were doing. And in a very, you know, indirect way it is, but, uh, but it was like continuity, strange. the continuity of the universe telling you you're in the right place at the right time with the right idea. Right. Uh, the right idea. And, and then it's a question of how do you get, how do you, alert these people that you mm -hmm. that you've that you found through their smoke signals how do you alert how do you, how do you find your own way your way to the, to them like mm -hmm. how do you connect because so much of modern life seems to be erected specifically to obstruct these connections from happening and to prevent us from getting to know each other and to prevent us from working with each other and building with each other i mean just you, just like you just scan around and you realize to what degree not just like the physical limitations, but the 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 like societal, the incentive structures where like you are shamed every time from every angle when you try to bring uh, a few of these forces together. Like you, mm -hmm. we, we saw it. We can we see it in the coverage of this ball, which bring which yeah. brings these disparate forces together under the umbrella of fashion, and, and like every single fascism journalist. <laughs> Yeah, fascism, and it's like racism, and there was no mention of race. But who bought, who mentioned race? Right. It was the journalist. Right. Well, I won't mention his name, but one of the quote unquote conservative outlets there, he's the one who asked a question to try to make the conversation about race because right. Anna made the very funny joke, "I can't breathe," because she was she in a tight ass corset. corset. <laughs> she was in a corset. It's called right. a joke. <laughs> Jokes are funny because they are they are take they're 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 a statement made in the in the inappropriate context. Right. Uh, and it's just well, like Well, and this is what's so frustrating is because of inst instead of focusing on all of the thoughtful and beautiful things that I had worked really hard to put together that night, instead they took they literally translated people's drunken speech into text, which would reflect poorly on absolutely anybody who had a night out and just made the entire audience look like, like trash, you know, and it's just so irritating and so disappointing. And so predictable. So ultimately, so it's predictable. yeah, I mean, ultimately it's, so it's so boring and predictable that the fact that, that it wasn't worse is actually the the headline. The headline really? isn't that you know that's the, that it wasn't worse. That there actually there were some positive vibes. Vogue, yeah. um, maybe some Washington of the I haven't Post read all. The came salivating for a racist soundbite, for a off-colored innuendo, for some sort of distasteful tone, and they found absolutely nothing except like. Uh, a misappropriated quote. <laughs> right. Uh, Ra Rachel, so Rachel, so the Washington Post, I have to, we have to, I have to address this because this is really something. The Washington Post sends a, a reporter named Rachel Tashian and a last name that's not Armenian, but Tashian is an Armenian name. So I'm personally, I've, I've, I personally am now like on, on alert. <laughs> She's sitting in the front row during the salon part. So this is after the first hour of mingling 
of so socializing, of schmoozing. We go upstairs to um, an air, a, a stage, a mini stage area room with with chairs. Everyone sits down, and we we listen to about an, a, a conversation that lasts about an hour. My 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 sense of time isn't exact. It's introduced by our good friend Monica, who is in, you know very actively involved with you in this, and she she's she'd been. Um, uh, she'd been doing a lot of uh, uh, podcasting about Gone with the Wind recently, um, and she gives an introduction about Scarlett O'Hara and her meaning and like her meaning as a female archetype. And then there's a con and then there's just a casual conversation between Jack and Anna. Anna also has a monologue about Gone with the Wind, and then there's a little conversation between Jack and Anna. Jack is the, Jack Mason of the Perfume Nationalist, of course, is the one who may who's been championing Gone with the Wind alone in the wilderness for years. He has an right. epic episode from 2020, which is about Gone with the Wind and which covers the insane uh, storylines of 2020 as in, in a manner uh, to which Gone with the Wind is basically allegorical. Um, and so he's just riffing and he knows everything there is to know about Gone with the Wind. He connects it to the tradition of the shopping and fucking novel uh, that has that has taken us to the present day, and which is obviously uh, central to the concept of this as a as a fashion statement, because the shop the uh, the way Jack approaches artistic works is very much through the prism of taste. He has a perfume. That's why he's into perfume. He can right. smell things. He can feel. He can sense things, and that is the way in which Gone with the Wind was, I think, utilized for very aptly for for this fashion event it was not about it, it was not some sort of ideological manifesto and it was not even a debate it was a discussion around the this kind of uh sensory and spiritual yeah. character yeah and it's funny but just to get into a little bit of why i chose gone with the wind i think a lot of like that subculture had been very um taken with some of Jack's podcasting and writings. And he is just such an influential mind. He's a star. He's, he's great. And I also just, I wanted to create something beautiful for Monica as well, because she is the 2024 Scarlett O'Hara archetype. Like she is the, the lowly born daughter of, uh, Eastern immigrants who's found her way and has just like created this industrious and uh, beautiful empire for herself. And I identify a lot with that myself as, you know, the other daughter of an immigrant who's like struggling to build something special with my world too. And so a lot of this, um, the impetus for this evening was to, capitalize a little bit on that zeitgeist, but also put forth um, a character study on Scarlett O'Hara, who has a lot of alignment with my brand mission. My archetype for femininity that I've always wanted to um, propose through a fashion message is kind of around this woman from, you know, the bygone Midwest, this body and assertive and warm-hearted woman who who I recognize from my past. Um, I had a very blue-collar upbringing, and a lot of um, my teachers and my friends' mothers were uh, just all sorts of different 
uh, utilitarian industrial uh, personalities. They worked in factories, welding shops, all sorts of different very hands-on crafts. And these were the types of women who were uh, they accepted and they appreciated consequence and they were relentless and they were uh, non-apologetic for their vices and their desires. And these are women who had insisted on creating a legacy of meaning and significance in in a in a place of transience in a forgotten part of America and there's just something about that that really speaks to me and I think the Scarlett O'Hara archetype is very symbolic of that sort of um desire for transcendence and greatness and she's this complicated multifaceted pugnacious character who is neither good nor bad but is true to her um, to her vision and so this is kind of the feeling sphere right that I'm building out of and it really was a lot of different references. I, I love Camille Paglia. Camille Paglia had a really exciting portrait of Scarlett O'Hara in some of her works that I wanted to speak about as well. So this is, it's, it's a very like earnestly enthusiastic uh, entry point. This wasn't designed to piss off every 20 something year old in Bushwick. It was really about um, a, a portrait study of a, a complicated and non-traditional vision of femininity. So that was that was the origin, and um, it, it's a shame to see how far it's been taken out of context. Yeah, but it, it, it's it's a shame, but it's also it's also a elucidating. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah exactly, and it's also an opportunity to to remind people or to demonstrate what that context is. I think it's really important. To, I mean, I'm, I, I was raised by the type of women you were just describing, you know, uh, and my, my grandmother, my grandma, I mean, of course, you know, I'm, I'm a child of immigrants and extremely industrious ones. And my, my, one of my grandmother's mottos was, <laughs> was be happy and industrious. Hmm, that was one. my grandmother it. who was a tailor. <laughs> <laughs> um, and who, yeah, be happy. And it's all she ever, she always like, she loved the word industrious. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a, there's also, these are, you know, it doesn't kind of, kind of come up because of the antebellum and the Southern context overwhelming it and the civil war context overwhelming it. But at the soul of these characters is they are pioneer women. Exactly. These are like Monica's a pioneer woman too. Right. I, I didn't. I you know, am a I pioneer woman. You are the child of pioneer women, you know, and like those yeah. are the women who created the American spirit. And I shouldn't be called a racist or a fascist for finding <laughs> finding inspiration in a in a classic tale that heralds these sorts of you know women. If you find racist, <laughs> let's put this way: if you if you if you think that it's racist or fascist to celebrate pioneer women and pioneer the uh, pioneer mentality, pioneer men pioneer liberty, pioneer brutality. If you think that is racist and fascist, you're actually just not American. You don't, you don't understand anything about American history. You don't understand anything about the meaning of America and about the ideas that drove Americans. I mean, it's just, it's not even a matter of like, it's not even just a matter of 
disagreement. It's just you don't you have zero respect. The libs of old had treason. no trouble. Huh? <laughs> Yeah, you're, you you're, you're, football, you're a traitor. You're treasonous. You're a traitor. And honestly, you should be, you should be. Publicly. But you know what? But, it's so funny that all of the women and all of the people that really respond to this pioneer narrative and understand that as a spirit of American um, legacy are all foreigners. Like, why is it Rachel? Why is it Lauren? Why is it Kathy who are upset about what I'm trying to express here? I just... I don't understand. Well, they're, they're mogged. I think they're. I think they feel they feel mogged in general. I think that these, um, uh, you know, this has always been the case. I mean, look at Camille Paglia. Look at the way she she herself was always um, mistreated by the northeastern elites. Mm-hmm. She her she's a she's a daughter of immigrants too, and she herself has all the kind of ethnic. Um, uh, abrasiveness of a pioneer woman. I mean, she's not a right. she's not a Western she's not a Western gal, but she has all the she's all the the uh, kind of the 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 machismo and mm-hmm. the profanity and the the humor, the vulgarity of your classic pioneer woman. That's they're they're all known for these traits. And yeah. the northeastern elite uh, little uh, uh, little uh, uh, you know, covens and 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 you know little like birds little nests. They didn't like her, and the people who treated her best, according to her, were like you know, out west or even back in Europe. Um, yeah. People you know, the, the spread all over the land. I mean, look at her greatest. Her, look at the people who rescued her legacy now. People like Jack in Texas. You know, people like uh, people like uh, uh, um, Anna from no. She's Anna's in New York, but she's from nowhere basically. I know like, Anna was nowhere five six before Red Scare in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I mean, there's like, there is this sense throughout American history. And by the way, I mean, I think, you know, another person to put probably put into your, um, into your thought, your, your thought museum about future events would be Willa Cather because she was so good. Willa Cather was, is one of the great chroniclers of the pioneer woman and the pioneer drama and everything else. And she was, she's really, and of course she moved to New York and wrote mostly in New York, in your, in Greenwich, but her books are some of the ultimate documents, her novels of, of the American uh, pioneer spirit. And, you know, like there is a sense in which like in, in America, the genius grows among the weeds out, out and from unpredictable places. And, it comes to the various cultural centers, New York, in the old days, Chicago. I don't think Chicago is really a thing anymore. So now it's just like New York and LA where, they, right. where it comes to be assessed and it comes to be, uh, you know, manufactured and packaged and everything. And, and, and very often the sitting elite little uh, 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 seagulls, they start to squawk about it and they feel threatened when some weird outsider from nowhere has come in with a with with like a bold individual something to say, mm-hmm. and you're one yeah, of them. Yeah, and it's well, if COVID taught us anything, it's about the lack of physical centralization that is required of people who want to impact the creative narrative. Like I can I can fuck off to Wisconsin and still be in Vogue and still be in New York times and all of these different like um, coastal elite spheres of influence. And that's just 
that's just the internet. Like at this point, it's not about New York and LA. It's about these tertiary secondary cities where culture is popping up after people are realizing that these places are unsustainable and they're, they're thought ghettos. So I think it's smart that like Jack insists on living in Austin. And at some point I'm probably going to go back to Wisconsin because that is the proximity and the spiritual reinforcement that I need to be able to make great art. What is your, um, I want to get back to the bulk because we, we, there was a, there was a point in which like, to, 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 I want to ask you. I want to ask you a little bit about LA. I'll get back to the ball because the point where we left off was this is the context in which Rachel Tashian of the Washington Post sits in the front row during the conver- during the the conversation, and when Jack makes the connection between um, Gone with the Wind and the sh- and the shopping and fucking novel as for as 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 popularized even further by a uh, pulp writer one might call her romance writer judith krantz mm-hmm. uh in in a in her novels like scruples jack is making this connection he's made it before and and he's making it very uh luridly and very in, in, and with many different examples and rachel Toshian is nodding vigorously in the front <laughs> row she is like thrilled by this. Clearly, she's a Judith Kranz fan, and and this connection is right up her alley. And she's like nodding vigorously. We were talking about it afterwards. Like, who is that lady nodding yeah. vigorously in the front? Oh, that's the, oh, that's Ra- oh, that's Rachel Toshin from the Washington. Oh, she had a great Post. time. Good. <laughs> she had a great thank. Oh wow, she was really taken by Jack. Yeah. And then you read her review, and it doesn't have any in- insults at, at 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 Jack. Thankfully, but. It the whole review is just like is how this was um controver- boringly controversial and and you know comparing she tries to own Gone with the Wind by comparing huh? Yeah, this, what was it? Snooze. That's what she yeah, transgressive it. snooze, bombastic <laughs> nap. It's like these these like fucking compound ideas that make no sense because there's right. no such thing as being boring and controversial, and there's no thing, <laughs> such thing as being transgressive and a snooze. You're either right. you, if you if you there's no such thing as being subversively benign, and there's nothing that that none of that makes sense. You're right. you're <laughs> you're trying to erase the compliment with a word that isn't that isn't real because the point is it got it, it was transgressive it was subversive it was controversial and therefore it was interesting there's no other way for that to go precisely and also she did throw around some exceptional insults she called me a neocon which i don't think i've ever heard oh yeah what was that all about <laughs> she, called me a neocon. she called anna a pseudo evil like it was just all sorts of pseudo, really yeah. great so that's the other thing so Con, um, uh, uh, a transgressive snooze and a pseudo evil because you know when when someone's e- there it's totally possible to be pseudo pseudo evil means not evil that's the right. meaning of pseudo evil pseudo means <laughs> n- fake right so when you say pseudo evil you're just saying fake evil which means not evil which means there is a performance happening and you don't want to say anything good about it so you're just making up something fake, like you, you're making a pseudo critique that's not right. real. Truly, it's, it's a shocking yeah. level of discourse. So I, mean, I don't know. I was. Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> are you? Are you? Where are you? Okay, from a because 
you had to know this was going to be coming. So given what your expectations are, where are you at on a scale of one to 10 with on the gratification scale at this exact nature of the media response to this? Mm, are you gratified? Un, you know, yeah, pissed. Where are well, you? Exactly? Here's the thing, it's like this was a multiple pronged experiment. Like obviously fashion is what I'm passionate about creating. That is what I find the most joy in. But I'm also really curious about tinkering with the socio-political machinery and trying to make new proposals based on where I see value, based on what I'm excited about. Um, so the salon format was something that I was genuinely really excited to propose. And I was hoping that people would see value in that sort of a space. And so there's the fashion, there's the event, but there's also a uh, uh, endurance exercise that I'm creating for myself based on my proximity to transgression, to cancellation. It, it, it almost feels like a flame that you have to touch to be able to um, start to create the most searching and introspective and meaningful work that you can. This was me sort of doing like altitude training as an artist and really insisting on creating within a context that didn't consider cancel culture, that didn't consider consensus culture. It was me making the most truthful work to myself in a context that didn't have any of these sorts of uh, creative microaggressions. So all of these different things are fueling uh, the event. And I had a terrible time at the event. I was fighting for my life. Like every minute of that event, I was on guard. I was fight or flight. Like I knew that people were going to decide whether I got to live or die in the creative industry based on how beautiful the night was aesthetically. And so that was a lot of pressure. I didn't know quite what I was getting myself into. I did not necessarily need to go and wage single-handed jihad on the cultural hegemony <laughs> for fashion mm, <right>. week. <laughs> what, um, what was your biggest concern when you were I'm during the night itself? Just, just, uh, how, just how you I'm, I'm eight out of 10 on the gratitude and uh, appreciation spectrum. Okay, I think good. I did a great job. <laughs> you hit it. You did do a great yeah. job. Thank um, you. I agree, but I want, I'm curious what you thought, what, what you thought you did do a great job. And I'm curious too, what, like, what were some of the, potential fire alarms during the night because people don't understand when yeah. you put on an event of any kind and if you have a certain vision for it and you have a certain and it's not just uh, okay anything goes you know when you have a certain artistic like intention for an evening and for a right. live event of some a performance really if this is a performance by other by it's different show means. business baby it's production it's like, you can do all of the preparation you can put out as many fires on paper beforehand but at some point, you just have to take your hands off the wheel and just observe the night in practice. Like all sorts of chaos variables, all sorts of wild elements are going to unfold themselves.
how you can spend six months making sure there is absolutely not one snag in the master plan. But sure as shit, like someone's going to find a way to fuck up your night somehow. <laughs> it's the beauty of like producing events, you know, like 60% of it can be bulletproof, but the other 40% just comes down to people and people with alcohol. <laughs> You're right, right. And there's no way to prep. There's no yeah. way to prepare. That's for that. kind of fun, there's though. no way to prepare. And there's always like, yeah, part of it is it part of it is like it, it, it takes in a way it takes some of the edge off of being 100% stressed out about something because this has been the story with me and yeah. my two events as well, where I have there's a lot, a lot, a lot of stress, a lot of, you know, hyper consciousness of how everything's going to go. And everyone thinks that they're that it's just like, this yeah. is a fun time. Like, like me when coming to your ball, I'm like, oh, hey, hey, here's a fun New York party. And you're like, yeah. you know, you're like that, that your brain is like in right. a million different directions. You know, there's no way you can possibly enjoy until maybe the after party. That's when you can finally let That's when you're exhausted. Maybe. It all comes but to But even then you're dealing with, yeah, you're too <laughs> yeah. exhausted to care at that point. Yeah, it's kind of fun. Like there's always a there's always a chaos variable that is just the spice of life after the after, you know, at the end of the day that you just have to enjoy. Like there's a part of the night where you just have to take your hands off the wheel and just observe things happening. <laughs> and some what did what happened? What happened that was like a little unexpected that night? Was there something that you can talk about that was like <laughs> artistically or aesthetically there was anything that was unexpected like i have to be everywhere at once at these sorts of events i have to be in the moment socializing with people and giving quotes and giving interviews and um diffusing tension and i also have to be coordinating mm -hmm. with the pr team to make sure everyone's getting in to make sure that we're hitting all of our success metrics that um that the night is filled out properly with all of these different attendees. And then I'm also making sure that the bar has everything that they need to be mixing drinks. And I have to make sure that, you know, the set is produced and the flow of the evening is going according to plan. And I have this skill set. I don't mind it. I think um, being able to produce these sorts of events is a really exciting and beautiful way to uh, contribute to, to the building of a, of a community that I'm, really proud of. And, um, I think it went really well again, like there's always going to be somebody who doesn't understand that they are, um, that they're, huh? How do I explain this? They, people need to realize that like, I, uh, uh, it's a work engagement. And that, um, you can't get too drunk at the holiday right. party. Otherwise the boss is going to look bad. <laughs> okay yeah. i got you yeah yeah i got you um yeah it's 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 always a hard thing to do when you're it's always a hard it's always a hard mixture when the work engagement is also like the ultimate party totally. engagement of your life totally you know what i mean and so especially if someone's on the younger side or the young not younger so much but like the uh the the youth in terms of like their like they, people get like, people realize, oh shit, this is going to be the, this is the most glam thing I've ever been to. And they forget that perhaps that it's that supposed to be Times a job. The Times is listening over their shoulder for a, a off color joke. Every little yeah. whisper. Yeah. Every little whisper. I mean, 
we yeah that, and and that was another thing that was i think that was properly played which is that there was an unspoken rule or spoken rule not to talk about not to make not to give them exactly. the bait of bringing up yeah race, and it was a very race, choice which was it a smart was like that's not a part of the narrative that i feel a need to contribute to nobody is asking for my opinion on any of that sort of thing like I'm going to parse out the parts of this story that I'm excited about and that I see value in and completely reject wholesale the parts that I don't need to comment on. And some people saw that as uh, a rejection of uh, the sensitivity that one should apply when discussing these sorts of contentious works. And then other people saw it as like a, a very specific um, cowardly, I don't know. There was just no way to win. It was a lose-lose scenario, but it worked out. It made sense. You just, no, it was a lose-lose totally. wins. Everything's like a lose-lose yeah. win scenario, which is you just don't exactly, care about either law, exactly. either of the two sides. Yeah. There's so much more, you know, the whole point of this is that the whole point of the kind of the 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 provocative nature of this is that we've been told for the last many 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 years you know we've been told this for a long time but the two but the but the the authority the authoritative uh and draconian and one might say fascistic tone of the telling from all levers of from all institutions of power over the last 15 or so 10 10 or so years has been that we cannot that we must throw out the baby with the bathwater and that if there is anything remotely problematic about anything it damns the entire it damns the entire uh person the entire work and that there you cannot you cannot contend with that person or with that work without making it this festival mm -hmm. of apology you know, and having the and 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 without vandalizing it with uh, mm. sensitivity warnings, and it almost it's it's so it's been so destructive that it it kind of what it does to people online who are the quote unquote edge lords is that it creates this almost necessary need, uh, um, uh, itch to speak only about the thing that is being right. forbidden, like. If you're going to go that far about gone with the wind, not just gone with the wind, but anything that has even rem any remotely racial connotations in any respect, it's not just gone with the wind. That just happens to be one of the big ones that, um, like it, it, it will necessarily create a counter reaction where all you can do is talk about, well, what is it exactly. that they don't want you to know? And lost in this react in this in this in this particular war are all the things that are not actually relevant that are that are basically buried such as the the female the 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 commentary or the dramatization of the of the american female archetype as represented by scarlett o'hara uh such as the shopping and fucking aspect of gone with the wind such as the uh the particular blend of like satire and mm -hmm. eroticism which was so prominent in Margaret Mitchell's writing, also in Ayn Rand's, and other female writers and other in, in this element of popular American literature that has been kind of swept aside 
and which has also become politicized because sex right. has become so politicized and you cannot in any way uh, kind of deal with sexual candor and with, uh, with you know, ribaldry without being apologetic and mm -hmm. about that as well. So like all these things get flushed out and they want to make the conversation a, a, a an right. HR conversation. Um, and it's to me perfectly legitimate to say, okay, no, I'm not going to, you know, I like, I believe in talking about everything. So if there is a, if there is a, if I'm going to talk about Gone with the Wind, I'll cover the race. I'll cover everything in, in my mm -hmm. realm. But in the realm of a fashion show, there's it's perfectly legitimate to say we're going to neutralize this bait, the bait factor, so that n nobody can say shit without embarrassing themselves. And that's what kind of happened. I mean, all, anyone who tried to make it about race was specifically exposing their own charlatanism. Like they're just, you know, I mean, including on the conservative side that tried sure. the one who tried to the anti-racist conservative outlet there or whatever that tried to make it clear that uh, oh, the, the only reason they can see for doing a Gone with the Wind themed event was to be kind of ambiently racially right. provocative. When in fact, um, it's, the, it's the perfect so symbolic story to be discussing in 2024 when we're in the middle of a culture war, when we're in the middle of what feels like a, a, a cold war, a cold civil war. And... Yeah. yeah, cold civil war. And so in a lot of ways, it is a really prescient uh, story to be hashing out. And I think the the methods of violence that we're using to fight each other with are also telling of this apocalyptic landscape that is um, so similarly created in, in the story. Right. It's we've a hundred percent. This has been a big theme of my show. Um, for you know uh, that that it's a big it's a big theme of also how it's it's kind of like the role that specifically in my in uh, Los Angeles has in my world as a almost eternally apocalyptic landscape and and one in which it's it's so easy to find oneself. In, uh, observing and being part of various civil wars. Uh, you know going going all the way through and maybe it's just maybe it's just a figure in the pattern of american history now given the reality of the original civil war um there are times when it seems completely obsolete and then there and then next thing you know we're back in it again right. in a different form and we're doing this like these proxy civil wars over and over again and it's absolutely been a civil war where half the country where half the country is being demonized and there, there are there are massive carpetbagger like industries uh, being erected to uh, profit off of the demonization of half the country, and in demonizing half the country, at a certain point, that half of the country is going to have to take on certain demonic elements to sure. to survive. There's no other thing. There's no other way to to do well, it. When, when you make pariahs out of the moderates all. in your political spectrum, like what do you expect? I didn't realize that it would require so much courage and conviction to come out as a centrist in the fashion industry. You know, it's just right. I don't want to make political work. It's not interesting. Nobody's asking for a political commentary from me. My job has always just been to be make beautiful and meaningful work and to tell stories that resonate with people on a higher level. And people keep putting me into a political context 
And I, I'm the bug. I'm not the entomologist. But if you keep calling me a racist, you keep calling me a fascist, then that's what I'm going to start to integrate into my work, the, into the context, into the framing of how I think about myself as a pariah, as a, you know, as all of these different maligned adjectives. And it's just, it's not a healthy way right. to, um, to, to admonish your creatives. No, but it's, but that's the point is that ultimately one must, this just gets into another kind of topic that I wanted to bring up because I feel very much the same way. Now I, I have a different, somewhat of an odd, uh, uh, a zigzag history to this part of this, this era we're in, which is that I kind of got, I, I got into art through provocative political mm. expression. That's how was that provocative politics is how I got excited about ideas and art and books and literature to begin with. And, and, and I got really into uh, in high school. And then, you know, I've told the story to people who know my past I got I burned out of it like around the age of 1920. I realized that political also there was a relatively free time in American history and American culture. This was the mid 2000s. So like by the by mid to late 2000s I'm like, okay, there's plenty of people who can handle the political battles that are meaningful to me, which are the battles for freedom, for free speech, for uh limited bureaucratic interference in life. These are the ones that matter most to me. Uh, for for low for for uh, for lowering crime, the ones that the ones like for for counteracting this this fanatical pseudoscientific belief in climate change, um, uh, you know, at whose altar we will sacrifice every kind of human progress if necessary. These are the things that kind of mattered to me when I was in high school, and I got I got really sick of it because I kept pursuing the path of art and I wanted to understand the, the, ma the master mysteries of existence and of humanity. And I did not want to get, you know, be repeating these political battles that are going to exist forever. It was beneath me at a certain point. I was bored with it. And, you know, all these years passed and now here we are again, starting around 2020 where it became impossible to avoid political uh, atmosphere. Everything right. became politicized. Everything became politicized. The only way to avoid it is to just be the most boring, anodyne, checked out person on earth. If you're in any way in the arena, you are you are being called a fascist. You are being called a you're you're dealing with all of this unavoidably. It was my first great anger. My first rage was that I was dragged yeah. back in to the to to the to, to this realm, and. My, you know, one impulse that I have is one that many people have, I think, which is that, quote unquote, politics is boring. And there and, and it is in a certain way. It is like the, the level at which it's it's done in the in the um, in the kind of the industry, the outrage industry mm -hmm. manner. It is boring. But if you're being if you and your friends and loved ones are being targeted for destruction. In a civil war. You haven't. You don't have the ability to say that you have, you don't have the ability right. to be above it completely. You have to, you have to contend with it somehow. You have to make that a part of what you're doing. Otherwise, you're just kind of you know you're you're checking out in the middle of you know you're you're deserting the battlefield. And I think that you can battle. You can fight with art 
but you can't avoid fighting in certain mm -hmm. circumstances. It has to, you have to realize that it is a fight and you have to put all your imaginative powers to work to, to develop a kind of weapon that they don't have any sure. defense for. And it's interesting that you say That's this, but because it. since my soft cancellation, I've really been honing my powers of dissociation and really trying to refocus um, this energy that propels me forward as being singularly mine and not relying on the context or the opinions of others. And so I've been really trying to understand how to uh, participate in a collaborative communal society while also maintaining the ability to reject these sorts of interactions and coast above them in a way that suits me and serves my purpose as an artist and a creative. So I'm, I'm wondering, like, is this a binary fight that you have to meet head on with the tools of the aggressor? Is it disassembling the master's house with the master's tools? This is the exact psychological experiment that I'm trying to uh, formulate for myself right now in this process that I'm going through. Well, I think you've, I mean, and I, I, I mean, I think this salon has been a, a big, a, a, you know, a, a, a big sign that you're on the right track because now you had, let's, let's talk for a minute before, because I, I think the salon idea is really important because I, you know, I, like I feel a kinship to what you've been doing through fashion and what, whatever the hell it is I've been doing here in LA through whatever <laughs> the hell it is I do, <laughs> um, which is not sure. design dresses, but uh, uh, you know, something else, but it's also, but, but it, but it's similarly like there's this, it's this, a ambition to combine various elements of theater, uh, uh, theater kind of uh, a comedy, um, just co a candid, candid self-expression, and also a little bit of uh, scripted, imaginative, imaginative illusion to to tell a story um, and to make an experience that that draws people in for, through different dimensions, uh, and and also kind of battle also kind of just creates a, a, a I hate the word space because space <laughs> is so over but literally does create like yeah. a physical a physical space where life is legal and permitted and life happens because that's the other thing is they've taken that they've taken the and I use the word they like obviously you know you know in, in its sci-fi sense They've taken away, I think, the um, the they've they've drained the river of life such that the kind of the kind of activity that we that in, in which culture thrives is harder and harder and harder to find. Like that, just the basic reality where you can walk in and feel like a human being with human dreams, human aspirations, and you can find other people who who connect with you at that same level, and you can you can all together kind of. Uh, create something you know you can just you can feel like you're on a right. journey with people this has been taken away like to the literal degree in 2020 and it hasn't come back it's not right. widely available it's not like the, the the restrictions are gone but there's no there's no sense i've been to many cities and i can say with great confidence that unless specifically one of us is staging an event there is 
a very little chance for you to interact mm -hmm. with humanity in the current world. Like there just is, there's just very little chance. There's very little humanity yeah. interactions going on in public places, unless they're being specifically right. instigated by, by interlopers sure. like you or, or, or like myself, like I've, I've learned this now. It's an so, oh, where was intellectual I going prohibition. And I think to create right. the speakeasy, to create the salon is to create a space for engagement that doesn't necessarily map cleanly onto a liberal or a conservative matrix. And the body of work that can right. extend from that evening or from that solidarity or kinship is threatening to a lot of people. It really is. It, it and and um, the question I've always asked myself, or the question we're all asking ourselves, if we're if we're like minded in these times, is like, is there enough? Is there enough of a public appetite for that zone that is neither the liberal nor conservative matrix? And the problem with the and I have no problem with the conservative. I mean, I'm not the one to like be like I'm not that right or left. No, I'm not. I'm I'm my politics have always placed me mm -hmm. on the right. In, Amer in the context of America, even though uh, I, I despise many aspects of the right and, I, and, and outspokenly, and before many others have noticed how bad they are, but I have no d illusions, uh, delusions about where I fall under the conventional rubric of political mm -hmm. alignment. But the problem is that you have what the, when I, when I think of the matrix of the right, I think of what we call conservatards who have their own little outrage industry mm -hmm. constructed, which to my eye, in many cases, is not only um, you know, superficial, shallow, boring, annoying, but also specifically designed to lose uh, because of the way, because you know, the profit and the profit motive isn't necessarily connected with with victory right. and with winning hearts and minds. It's like you have certain out like if you wanna, you can make money for the rest of your life being pro-life, being anti-abortion, but at the same time, you could be making it impossible that Republicans ever win another election. You know, these are like these are just like that's just an example. It's just, but more, but more specifically, it's boring and it's and it's predictable and it's not uh, culturally ambitious to be to be peddling outrage bait the way so many YouTube talking heads do on either in either matrix. So yes, is there a matrix which has been? somebody once somebody very stupid once tried to malign as the art right mm -hmm. is there a matrix where um where true cultural freedom is the is the the main principle and where the efforts of man and woman to to impress their visions upon um their 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 community and to create something and to perform something, whether these are going to be accepted as like as as for what they really are, and not for how they they check the boxes of this or that. And yes, uh, ideological that exists, platform. but it's not political. It's yes. creative. Okay, good. It's the avant garde. It's being post post modern, post woke, post beautiful, post all of these different. Uh, you know, boxes that we're talking about. It's yeah, post postmodern post too, right? because post because post <laughs> and like yeah, I think that that's postmodern really exciting about this space in New York right now that people are trying so desperately to malign is that this is a very cohesive burgeoning 
creative avant-garde that's composed of all sorts of different multidisciplinary thinkers, writers, philosophers, public intellectuals, fashion designers, artists. Like this is a group of people that are discontented with the present status and who are imagining a context for their work that doesn't necessarily adhere to the laws and the moralities du jour, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that's, yeah. And that's like, that was a, that's where I was going with too, is I think that like that, like the insistence and the um, creation of that context is Mm -hmm. so important. I mean, we're we're like, I don't, I think we're past the point where we wonder where, whether, will they, will the New York Times ever get it? Will the Washington Post ever get it? Will whatever cut, whatever these like, publications that don't even need to exist honestly will they ever get it no no they're never going to get it they're not there to get it they're a reactive they are they are a reactionary and reactive uh entity they're not they're not there they're not if they ever were and at certain times they were i think aligned to perceive you know the what is new and interesting you could, there's like this big divide where it's, they're either there to enforce rules or they're there to perceive something new and interesting. And there have been journalists, critics throughout time who've been great at discovering talent, this, you know, announcing new movements and, and, and creating the conversation around new stuff and interesting stuff. That, that has definitely been a real part of American cultural history. I can name names. I mean, a lot of them were maverick type of journalists like H.L. Mencken. But there, there have been such people and there have been such producers. There have been such like record label executives. There have been all the greats basically have been, if, uh, through history are the ones who were who discovered talent, created something new, wrote the check for, you know, Dino De Laurentiis giving David Lynch carte blanche, you know, to, to like uh, giving him the chance then again to do Blue Velvet after the failure of Dune. There are all these examples and they will come handy again. I mean, the people to, who fund your events, the people who, the people who make actual money moves mm-hmm. if they have money, or influence moves if they have influence, or whatever it is. Uh, every level, people have their own opportunity to uh, make a courageous move and and take part in this. But I do think that what that what we really have to just like accept is that we need to create the context ourselves. Like if you have a fuck, if you're a fashion designer, you put on that ball, that ball is the, that is the, the space right now. It's not like, there's no other part. It was in the Irish Historical Society that the most interesting event of New York Fashion Week happened. It wasn't at the, run, wherever they did a runway where someone served cunt. I don't need any more cunt. I thought I've served all the cunt I can possibly swallow. Like I've cunted out, you know. So like there was no runway. There was your, you did a ball that was in one sense, super old fashioned and another sense, completely new. And I think like, like the way I see it, like there, there needs to be no more hesitancy if there, if there is any left that it's kind of on us to just like take over, to, to, to take over some real estate and say, this is where it's happening. This is where, this is what we're doing here. And this is where it's happening. And, and, you can come if you're interested. Maybe if you're not going to cause too much trouble, um, you can. You're welcome. Otherwise, it's not for you. And you know, you can seethe about it from out from beyond the. Beyond Absolutely, the ropes. I, I completely <laughs> agree. Completely. And once you realize that you have 
all of the resources at your own disposal to design the life that you want to live and to create these sorts of microcosms for your own community, the world seems so much more interesting. And that's what is so fucking beautiful about America is that it is an open source code that you can access, that you can hack, that you can code to create your own game, to create your own life and that is just so cool like all of the resources are there all everything you know to just host a fucking party that's all it takes but you find this venue on pure space (laughs) yeah on pure space you find the most beautiful place you could possibly find i'm being really reductive because there are a lot of like really negative things that come along with this like being maligned in the press like that's not fun i really want to be liked i want to be understood but not as much as i want to make meaningful work and to foster a community of people who i'm excited about like that is what's most important to me and if i can pool all of my skills and resources and talents into creating a meaningful space for that then then i will accept all of the consequences that come my way as a byproduct (laughs) yeah it is People do, yeah. That's a, I mean, we should note that it isn't. It doesn't. It isn't actually nice to be it's lied really about. Not. This. And it, and it's like people say, well, all publicity is good publicity, but yeah. no, it's not. I mean, it, it may be on the to the bottom line or whatever, but it's like it never feels good to be never. lied. Never. And I'm not and to be, too concerned about it uh, because I have another hundred years of life and talent in me, and I'm not going anywhere. You can't take anything from me. Like my talent is mine. My beautiful family is mine my health is mine and I'm out here. I'm here for the long run. I'm so sorry, girls, but like, you're going to see a lot more of me. <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm also, right. I'm also they, like they... morbidly um, propelled by having won all of the fashion award accolades. I've won all the competitions. I've met all of the high profile people. I went to the Met Gala and it's like, it didn't, it didn't do anything for me, really. Like, I have nothing to lose because I also have nothing to win here. There is, it's just such a bleak landscape for creatives. And of course, it would be the path of least resistance to go to Europe or to go to some other place that has a, a understanding of a grander tradition of culture. Um, but I see this space here, this desolate, starving landscape. I, I'm enthused by that. I see so much room for opportunity to create something exciting and meaningful right here, right now. So I insist on on staying. Yeah, I appreciate that because I believe in staying too. I don't believe in escape. I don't believe in running away yeah. to Europe. A lot of people advise that, you know, that they're like, you should go here, you should go there. Just in general, you know, they'll be like, life is so much better in uh, Bucharest and whatever. And I'm like, I'm from fucking... Los Angeles, California. I'm going yeah. to die here. I'm not, I do not belong in any new, you know, highfalutin, fancy little European town. But our message uh, is American. Where things are easier. It's so American. And like, we're better and we're more necessary. We're, the, the American, the thing about America is that it's, the, the stakes mm-hmm. are just higher. Your pleasures, are harder to come by. The pleasure pleasure level is higher in Europe, hundred um, percent. The 
all level, all pleasures are higher in Europe for the most part, you know, except for maybe basic like house comfort. But your artistic pleasures, your aesthetic pleasures, your sexual pleasures, your uh, culinary pleasures, your your maybe your music. I don't know about music, but your your pleasures are just everything comes easier, especially if you have a way of a, 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 a kind of an income or whatever in Europe or in some whatever fancy place somebody can name. But if you are, it's it comes back to the battlefield thing. Like you're deserting the battle for humanity if you're from America and you leave America. You know what I mean? Like if you spiritually leave it, if you physically leave it, it's 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 just like there's no. It's it's always been this fucking desert and man against mm. the desert here. And whether you can you can turn the you can you can build water out of a cactus, uh, whether you can you know, create the Hoover Dam that, that keep, that create, that, that, that generates life in uh, Nevada, Southern California and Arizona and the, and everything that comes with that and all the illusions and stars that come with that life and come with that water, whether you create a violent and extreme sort of light that, that splits reality into two um, and, and, you know, perhaps destroys, but perhaps also recreates the world forever. Uh, it's happening here at least if you're American, like that's where I, that's the thing, like you and I are American and it's very admirable that you have not left or that you have not, I should say, you have not taken the train of credentialed clout success that you very obviously were given full access to as a young woman. I mean, to win all those awards, like you could have just, you could have keep, you could keep chewing on and that. And that's the thing is you could, like, you could keep on how easy would piece, it have right? been for me to just make another beautiful, um, collection for fashion week like it wouldn't have been hard it's much harder for me to try and assert myself in this style uh and i was just hoping for a little bit more critical reception so i'm i'm in a weird phase sorry good you wanted more you wanted more like commentary on the specific no not necessarily just that like just what this interest and what this space and what this accumulation of people says about the larger zeitgeist in America in terms of what people are craving. Because as a fashion designer, I, I feel that I have a responsibility to filter all of these intangible trends and sentiments and turn it into something special that can be interacted with in all of these different sensorial ways. Um, and I, I wish people would trust me to communicate what I'm experiencing a little more. <laughs> I'm just, I'm so disappointed right. with the, the level of discourse in the fashion industry. And I shouldn't be. And I, sh- I, I knew what I was expecting and I knew what I was revealing. And at the end of the day, I think that um, this is part of the journey past all of the all of the gatekeepers and tastemakers and authorities that I felt that well, I needed you're getting, to adhere to. Yeah. You're also getting a new kind of person to think about Absolutely. fashion, such as myself, which not only have I never been into fashion as a thing, but I've never been less into fashion than post-pandemic. I have never been less into wearing, dressing up. Than post pandemic, you look ever. great. Like I've, I, I, I lost. <laughs> I need our icon oh, for this <laughs> profile to be Let's... you in your suit. 
Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. My uh, my like my Amazon.com uh, uh, special uh, that I was like, I I thought I was really worried I was gonna look absolutely fucking ridiculous, but everyone liked it. it seemed to like hit. it. You looked like the fourth musketeer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like some, it was um it was fun. It was fun once I was there because I once I once the whole like I saw the venue and I felt like I felt like okay, at least I'm like at least I'm doing something. At least as retarded as I look, at least I'm like you know, maybe I'm throwing maybe I'm making your stuff look oh, even yeah. better, you know, like by contrast, <laughs> by, by looking so tacky and like like I came out of a weird like um uh, Native American. Uh, That's you know, the thing. It's going to take a couple of these events um, until people realize that, oh no, fashion is really the facilitator of the night and people get really into it. And right. this is another thing about like designing your own reality is like, I'm also realizing that as a designer, it's also my responsibility to create this third space for people to engage with fashion in a fun and meaningful way that doesn't necessarily have to involve like going to the club or getting drunk at the bar, like creating that third space where your work can exist in a meaningful way. Yeah. It's important because I think what you, you do need that space because there is so much less of such space in this mm-hmm. apocalyptic world. I just don't feel like I have not shopped for clothes in the last four years. I've ordered some online, you know, like spending 10 minutes, because uh, I need some new pants, but I literally have not. Sh- I I used to go shopping a couple times a year. Like I mean, you know, I would I I liked to buy. I'd like to get something nice and start wearing that. I had I had that. I had. I'm not like completely alienated. I'm not like some of our friends who only wear black hoodies. Uh, you know, 100 of the time. Not to mention any names. But I, I I had I do have some appreciation and some like. I I also believe that if if you wear cl- if you dress up nicely. It simply makes you feel better as long as it's not too uncomfortable. If it checks the box of not being too uncomfortable, I'm talking about for a man. For a woman, I think if you look good, you I, there was a there was a saying. I don't know if it was Dostoevsky, Tolstoy. Somebody said that there was like the a a good dress. The self esteem that a woman gets from a good dress is so powerful that like in night in the 1890s there was some woman in Russia who could who in a, in a, like a very thin out dress. Could be out in the freezing cold and would not mind hose don't because get cold. her internal. That's why. <laughs> but this is Scarlett O'Hara. This is what I'm also see talking why. about. Like she has all of these different iconic dresses and garments that serve as like a physical extension of her like complicated and crazy mind, and that is just what's so exciting to me about fashion. And it's not about like getting people to take personal style more seriously. I don't give a fuck whether like people wear fashion or not. It really is just about like appreciating a new vehicle for uh, creative discourse and uh, expression. I don't particularly like fashion. I am just somebody who is craft obsessed and enjoys seeing a sculptural element on a 3D moving thing like the body is my canvas in the same way that my husband paints um and it's just like i don't i'm wearing kirkland's best like i wear costco every fucking day (laughs) because i'm not like i call myself an auto stylophile like I, i could never um bring myself to partake and engage 
so directly with this thing that I make. It feels incestful in a mm-hmm. sense. Um, so I don't necessarily need people to dress better or um, care about fashion. I just think that it's it's a really wonderful vehicle that I wish more people could appreciate. Yeah, I mean, and I think you're psyoping them into appreciating <laughs> appreciating it by drag by by you know by making it part of these other things and giving and creating a a world in which it makes sense. Like it, like I cannot believe I wore that fucking thing <laughs> out in public right. in New York and all night, and I was in public looking like that. And you and, still managed to get a know, cigar. Like, but. At, and I still managed to get a cigar and it made the cigar helped. I think the, the cigar gave me the confidence to look like that. But, and I got so many compliments from it that I was like, Oh, okay. You know, you can, if you, if you just act like you belong there and, and you, but you, like you belong in the, and you can get away with Absolutely. anything in this fucking world, which is another, I think, lesson of probably of fashion generally. Um, let's talk about the dresses yeah. themselves, because I think it's a, it's no one no It's a known thing that in a fashion show, you're kind of, uh, putting on the most illustrious thing you can. Like you're not, you're not, you're not, you're not necessarily showing off clothes that any normal person would mm-hmm. ever wear on a normal, in a normal kind of right. night. Where did, now I thought it was, they were stunning by the way. The the first person I noticed walking into the upstairs, upstairs into the hall, like a, it was like a, it was like, like her eyes were like the queen of spades just catching me and I turned and it was like a force and it was mm. Anna in her black, beautiful thing. And everything like the, the hair, the wig, whatever the hell it was, was great. She looked like the <laughs> queen of spades. Then of course, Monica in the scarlet red dress looking like the queen <laughs> of hearts looked amazing. You can see Monica and she's uh, pictured in the New York times write up. Um, I didn't even recognize Dasha at first because she was so, you know, like she just that whole babushka thing. She looked great. Uh, Pariah looked like a queen from a chessboard, uh, the way she was. I didn't even, and I thought they were really cool looks. What, like, are there, have there been orders based on these looks? Where do these, what's the next step for these? Yeah. So just to give like a little bit of a context as to how like a fashion collection is built, like these aren't proposals for people to, wear out to the club or to the bar. There's a percentage of the collection that is meant to uh, exist in a retail setting. Those are the t-shirts, the pants, the skirts, the dresses. Um, And then there's a percentage of the collection that is catered to establishing the brand genius to show you why you want the Mm t-shirt because you're purchasing into something spectacular. And so those pieces are usually just circulated after the fact with um, editors, stylists, celebrities, um, and they kind of exist as like a marketing extension. So this season, instead of doing a ready-to-wear collection, I really wanted to focus in on just doing a very few couple of looks that really spoke to um, the technique and the craftsmanship and the depth of the story that I wanted to tell. Um, So each look was a little bit of a conceptual vignette that was uh, extracted from all of these different facets of this manipulative, spoiled, bratty, dedicated, sincere, loyal, 
multidimensional character. And in a sense, I'm a little bit of a, a method actress when it comes to construction. Like I like to think about uh, creating the garment in the same context with the same materials and in the same hand as the character that I'm examining that season. So this season was really about an insistence of glamour and of splendor and elegance and aristocracy in the face of apocalypse, which is a context original to Scarlet herself, but also to the world at large right now. And each look was assembled with these like very lowly acetate textiles juxtaposed with these very elevated silks. So each look was a very uh, high-low textile collage. And everything was scrapped and salvaged and repurposed from my studio, uh, coinciding both with the thematics of the story, but also with the constraints that I'm experiencing in the world today. So it's a very parallel uh, communication almost between me and this muse that I have each season. And discussing these, uh, I don't want to say toxic, but uh, nuanced and difficult portraits of womanhood is a conceptual bent that I've been on for a really long time. Like last season, we had this show that was staged in the mud pit, and it was all about these longhouse characters and then the season before that was a story about all of these like wasteland anti-heroines very like american archetypes of complicated and um meaningful womanhood i suppose mm -hmm. was the wasteland show inspired at all by t.s Eliot's uh poem or is that like was yeah, that a, i mean because all of the these thing, have like a, each collection a, is either like narrative driven like i'm inspired by a really specific thing or it's just a world building exercise right. and that season was really more about um just telling a story about the atmosphere of where i come from and what it feels like to come from like a gritty industrial heavy metal wasteland in a bygone americana yeah. and we put out a film which i'll have to send you that was also an extension of that that feeling oh yeah i'd love to see it yeah, the Longhouse one was great. I remember the I I wasn't I wasn't there for that, but the pictures of of Monica walking <laughs> through mud with her breasts and everything are impossible <laughs> to forget. Um, I love that you call. I love to. I love that you called her. Uh, what did you call her earlier uh, this evening? Uh, um, you, I mean, you called her a Scarlet O'Hara type. Um, and this is I had I did one of our the most popular episodes of this of this show was when I talked to Monica way back two years ago, just to, uh, you know, about her mm -hmm. background where it's like, it's even more, it's even crazier when you know a little bit even more about the history. Like, it's not that she's just from some parents from the, from Eastern Europe. It's not just, that's not all it is. She's an, she's, she's half Armenian from right. Baku. There are no Armenians left in Baku. She's like the last Armenian ever from Baku. Got <laughs> it's it the craziest. Like I mean, she's, she's a whole, she's a whole, time. She's a whole man. Like she, she's really yeah, yeah. intriguing to me as both a friend and as a, a muse and an extension of this story. I think I identify with all of these different maligned, canceled anti-heroines that are 
desperate to communicate something that surpasses the the tools at their disposal to do it with. And I just think Monica right. really speaks to that to that feeling. Yeah, I love I love I mean I, she absolutely does and I love that you're using I love that you're uh you've 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 realized that how did you find how did you meet um how did i meet Monica? i i Where met her through pariah the doll um who insisted that i get on twitter because it feels like the only social media place where you can deal in this space of thoughts and ideas versus imagery or um you know tedious it's the only space where you can meet eccentric individuals with lines yeah, of their own. Yeah, it really feels like that. It's the and only it's, space where text It's is just where the, I hate to say this, I just, it's, it's where the discourse is happening. And it's a great place to filter right. trends for somebody who's looking for them. Right. So you just, you, so through, yeah, you, you little, you found her, you discovered her on your own, which speaks to, you know, which speaks to where your mind is at. And um, I think that's great. I are we allowed to talk about some of the orders you've received since the ball? If it's oh, private, we don't have to talk about it. But what do we talk? Yeah, are we I mean, we've gotten requests for the garments from all sorts of celebrities. Half the collection has gone to Madonna, to Dua Lipa, Charlie XCX. Um, I got one for Aisha Curry this morning. Like all sorts of random. And high-profile people that that I'm excited about because of you know they nobody will let me die. <laughs> it's like it really reinforces the fact that these journalists have no power over me, and people respond to my work regardless of what sort of light um, I'm painted in. Because at the end of the day, like the clothes just look good, and there's an audience of people that just want things that are pretty, and that's fine. Like. Bring back more of those people, please. Now, specifically, the garments that Madonna requested are yeah, Monica's she wants dress, the red the dress, dress, the scarlet and dress. And I Monica's. am desperate to have that on her. I think it 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 completes the circle in such a funny and cool way. And it is just like, I really feel like beating these people at their own game. It's really like... It, it just I mean, it shows the human centipede of the fashion industry in just such a funny way. And it's and it's and, and you know how how fitting as to how that dress has been saved because <laughs> Monica Monica crashed at my hotel uh -huh. that night because she was going on an early catching an early train and she left the dress in the hotel trash can because she didn't want to haul it. <laughs> And I went home with somebody, uh, a, ha a handsome fellow, handsome devil from the from the mm -hmm. after party, and part and somehow part of I was just like I know that because of the 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 fact that he that he's in in like acting and and modeling and stuff, and I and I just felt like I I convinced him to take the dress. <laughs> I was just like, I know there's going to be something. So now I have there's to coordinate with reason. your trade to get my damn dress back. I'm dead. I love it. Now you have to coordinate. But what better? But what better way for a dress to end so up New on York. Madonna's so body? Only in America. Than, than through the power of yeah, <laughs> the power of gay age gap promiscuity. But 
<laughs> shopping and fucking. Well, Alana, this has been great. Um, I, you know, we can go on forever because there's so many interesting things you're working on and so many avenues and they intersect with mine in many ways. And uh, can you talk at all about, we talked a little bit about the next one, uh, but has has it materialized in any way? What the, who and what the very, the next salon is going to be about? We're going to do the next salon probably in May. At some point, I really want to get serious about the business structure behind this. Maybe we're doing like a membership service. There's like a little bit more of a vetting component. Um, We're talking to somebody Mm -hmm. extremely exciting who I may have mentioned earlier in the night. Um, Dot, dot, dot. And before that, I have to go to Paris. I'm part of the LVMH Prize, which I will be swiftly cut from after this show. Um, so I'm going to go out there, have fun. Mm-hmm. I'm going to... Which is a clue as to who you're talking about, by the way. Which is a clue okay. as to who you're talking about. And then I'm going to go out there. I'm going to meet with uh, my <laughs> friends who are part of Curac, Keeping It Real Art Critics. They're going to kind of follow my journey in the LVMH Prize finalist uh, voyage. So that'll be really funny and cool. And mm. then we do market week. I have to try and sell the collection to all of our wholesalers and retailers. And then I have to come back to New York and produce the last collection, get it shipped up, sent out. And we're moving out of my studio and into my new house. So lots to, lots to Ooh, stay tuned for. And and do you have any final like fuck you type of statements you'd like to make to the uh, to the wonderful to our wonderful friends yes, in the media absolutely. or to anyone who may be listening as you're please enjoy a front row seat to every amazing gorgeous presentation that I show at Fashion Week from here on out. Um, I'm not going anywhere, and the work's not getting anywhere. Sorry. Tomorrow is another day. Tomorrow's another day, honey. Listen, it's New York City. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today.
This episode of Filthy Armenian Adventures was recorded over the air between New York City and Los Angeles, California. Opening written and voiced by your host, Alec Mohibian, guest starring Elena Velez, with Ragtime from Terry Waldo. This episode is supported entirely by the rug merchants, cigar singers, and oligarchs of the night who subscribe to the show on Patreon. To join their enlightened society and get access to over twice as many adventures, plus regular smoke break mini episodes, including the real-time reaction to Elena's Gone with the Wind salon, plus first dibs on our next live event, there's a secret ball in Vegas in a few weeks, subscribe now at patreon.com slash filthy Armenian. Thank you for listening, to be continued, and tomorrow is another day.